Coming to you from the Sunshine State, this is Create Brand Envy, a podcast dedicated to entrepreneurs and business owners discussing businesses, marketing, leadership, and best practices in this ever-changing business landscape. Every week, we'll introduce you to a different business leader that has taken their company to new heights despite the odds. Learn, engage, and thrive. This is Create Brand Envy. And now your host, President and CEO of Brand Envy, Nicole Alisea. This is unofficially season two of the Create Brand Envy podcast. I had originally wanted to do one episode every week, but then I got really sick in fourth quarter. I kept getting upper respiratory infections. And then right before Thanksgiving, I had flu type B. And yes, I got my flu shot. It was just a matter of since I had been sick leading up to it, I didn't get my flu shot in time. So I think I got my flu shot. And then a few weeks later, I actually caught flu type B. But then after Thanksgiving, I got sick again with very similar symptoms. And much to my surprise and my doctor's surprise, I had flu type A. Yeah, that sucked. I do not recommend. And then this past week, I flew up to um, Illinois because we had a photo shoot for one of our clients that were kind of overhauling their brand. So we need images for their new website, for their new, for their social media, for their printed collateral. And I, you know, was really careful going up to Illinois from Tampa to Illinois, wore a mask, you know, super neat. But then on the way back, you're driving back. We're trying to, you know, return the rental car. Um, you know, we're, we're, I'm trying to get through security. Uh, my, my pre-check didn't register because I stupidly entered the wrong number. So I had to get that fixed. And I had a flight that was, that was from like noon to three. So I needed to make sure that I, I got lunch before I got on the plane. Cause as you know, you know, flying now, they don't, it's not like they're like, oh yeah, we will be serving lunch. I really miss those days where flying was like, oh yeah, breakfast is included. And you could just like look forward. I actually, I remember looking forward to the meals that they would serve even for like short domestic flights. So uh, that's just kind of revealing my age. <laughs> and um, yeah, I have a milestone birthday coming up. But anyways, um, what I'm trying to say is that on the way back, I was so rushed and, you know, stressed just trying to literally get on the plane and make sure that I that I ate that I was like with the whole mask thing, I was like, screw it. And I caught COVID-19, or at least that's where I think I got it from. So yeah, if I sound hoarse, I've got COVID-19. If there's noise in the background, you know, my my daughter, unfortunately, we, we co-sleep. Um, and I know that's highly controversial, but it is what it is. So I so she, she has it. Uh, thankfully, it's pretty mild. So I'm grateful for that. It's been a little up and down, but I decided to go ahead and record it anyways, uh, to record this anyways, because usually I wait for everything to be perfect, for everything to be super quiet, for everybody to be at work or at school. And that's not going to happen this week. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and, and get it done. Speaking of flying, you know, right before, you know, each new interview, I like to kind of share my thoughts on something that's going on or, or whatnot. And, you know, for every episode, there's this moment where I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And then I come across something or I get inspired or I get an idea. And that's usually how it works out. And so for this episode, speaking of flying, I'm going to read something that I read online off of Facebook. And, you know, I honestly, I, I tried to kind of vouch to make sure that this was a valid source, but I didn't look too much into it because whether it is or it isn't, what this person is saying is true. And I and I think it would resonate with anybody, everybody. So I'm, I'm pretty confident it's, it's solid. But what it is, it was a post uh, that Larry Lonero, who is supposedly, uh, and again, I haven't really verified this, but he, he states that he's been a pilot for Southwest for over 35 years. And he goes into just kind of talk about what is going on with Southwest. And I thought that this would be a really good intro to share with you to my interview with Matt Loader for today's episode, who's the CEO of the original Krabby Bill's restaurants. And um, he, he, he's also the CEO and, and he's leadership with a lot of other restaurant groups. But I thought this would be good because um, here it talks a lot about leadership and employee buy-in. 
These are a lot of topics that um, I'm going to be discussing with Matt Loader in just a few minutes. So I'm just going to read what this person wrote. So the post says, what happened to Southwest Airlines? I've been a pilot for Southwest Airlines for over 35 years. I've given my heart and soul to Southwest Airlines during those years. And quite honestly, Southwest Airlines has given its heart and soul to me and my family. Many of you have asked what caused this epic meltdown. Unfortunately, the frontline employees have been watching this meltdown coming like a slow motion train wreck for some time. And we've been begging our leadership to make much needed changes in order to avoid it. What happened yesterday started two decades ago. Herb Keller was the brilliant CEO of Southwest Airlines until 2004. He was a very operationally oriented leader. Herb spent lots of time on the front line. He always had his pulse on the day-to-day operation and the people who ran it. That philosophy flowed down through the ranks of leadership to the frontline managers. We were a tight operation from top to bottom. We had tools, leadership, and employee buy-in. Everything that was needed to run a first-class operation. When Herb retired in 2004, Gary Kelly became the new CEO. Gary was an accountant by education, and his style leading Southwest Airlines became more focused on finances and less on operations. He did not spend much time on the front lines. He didn't engage frontline employees much. When the CEO doesn't get out in the trenches, then neither do the lower levels of leadership. Gary named another accountant to be chief operating officer, the person responsible for day-to-day operations. The new COO had little or no operational background. This trickled down through the lower levels of leadership as well. They all disengaged the operation, disengaged the employees, and focused more on return on investment, stock buybacks, and Wall Street. This approach worked for Gary's first eight years because we were still riding the strong wave that Herb had built. But as time went on, the operation began to deteriorate. There was little investment in upgrading technology. After all, how do you measure the return on investing in infrastructure? or the tools we needed to operate efficiently and consistently. As the frontline employees began to see the deterioration in our operation, we began to warn our leadership. We educated them, we informed them, and we made suggestions to them. But to no avail, the focus was on finances, not operations. As we saw more and more deterioration in our operation, our asks turned to please. Our pleas turned to dire warnings, but they went unheeded. After all, the stock price was up, so what could be wrong? We were a motivated, willing, and proud employee group wanting to serve our customers and upholding the tradition of our beloved airline, the airline we built and the airline that the traveling public grew to cheer for and love. But we were watching in frustration and disbelief as our once amazing airline was becoming a house of cards. A half a dozen small-scale meltdowns occurred during the mid to late 2010s. With each mini meltdown, leadership continued to ignore the pleas and warnings of the employees in the trenches. We were still operating with 1990s technology. We didn't have the tools we needed on the line to operate the sophisticated and large airline we had become we could see that the wheels were about ready to fall off the bus, but no one in leadership would heed our pleas. When COVID happened, Southwest Airlines scaled back considerably, as did all the airlines, for about two years. This helped conceal the serious problems in technology, infrastructure, and staffing that were occurring and being ignored. But as we ramped back up, the lack of attention to the operation was waiting to show its ugly head. Gary Kelly retired as CEO in early 2022. Bob Jordan was named CEO. He was a more operationally oriented leader. He replaced our chief operating officer with a very smart man, and they announced their priority would be to upgrade our airline's technology and provide the frontline employees the operational tools we needed to care for our customers and employees. Finally, someone acknowledged the elephant in the room. But two decades of neglect 
takes several years to overcome. And unfortunately, to our horror, our house of cards came tumbling down this week as a routine winter storm broke our 1990s operating system. The frontline employees were ready and on station. We were properly staffed. We were at the airports. Hell, we were on the airplanes. But our antiquated software systems failed, coupled with a decades-old system of having to manage 20,000 frontline employees by phone calls. No automation had been developed to run the sophisticated machine. We had a routine winter storm across the Midwest last Thursday. A larger-than-normal number of flights were canceled as a result. But what should have been one minor inconvenient day of travel turned into this nightmare. After all, American, United, Delta, and the other airlines operated with only minor flight disruptions. The two decades of neglect by Southwest Airlines leadership caused the airline to lose track of all its crews, all of us. We were there with our customers at the jet ready to go, but there was no way to assign us, to confirm us, to release us to fly the flight. And we watched as our customers got stranded without their luggage, missing their Christmas holiday. I believe that our new CEO, Bob Jordan, inherited a mess. This meltdown was not his failure, but the failure of those before him. I believe he has the right priorities, but it will take time to right this ship. A few years at a minimum. Old leaders need to be replaced. Operationally oriented managers need to be brought in. I hope and pray Bob can execute on his promises to fix our once proud airline. Time will tell. It's been a punch in the gut for us frontline employees. We care for the traveling public. We have spent our entire careers serving you safely efficiently, with love and pride. We are horrified. We are sorry. We are sorry for the chaos, inconvenience, and frustration our airline caused you. We are angry. We are embarrassed. We are sad. Like you, the traveling public, we have been let down by our leaders. Herb once said that the biggest threat to Southwest Airlines will come from within, not from other airlines. What a visionary he was. I miss Herb now more than ever. The reason why I chose to read this is because it really illustrates what happens when you don't put into practice some of the best practices that Matt reveals to us um, in this interview, where he talks about the need for change, where he talks about the need to listen to you know the frontline workers. So without further ado, let's get into it. Now, on to today's interview. If you've ever enjoyed a beach trip to the Tampa Bay area, chances are that you've enjoyed a meal at Krabby Bill's. Today, I am more than honored to introduce you to Matt Loader Sr., the son of Krabby Bill Loader, who founded the original Krabby Bill's in Indian Rocks Beach in 1983 with his lovely wife, Dolores. Today, Matt Loader is the Principal Chief Executive Officer of the original Krabby Bills in Indian Rocks Beach, which is the only Krabby Bills restaurant still owned and operated by the original founding family. Matt is also, and I'm going to kind of pause here for a second and say, hang, hang on, because this is going to be a long one. He, but I just want you to understand who we're, who we're speaking to today. He is the CEO of Jake's Coastal Cantina. That's a Mexican-inspired fast casual concept. He's the co-founder of MAM Restaurant Management Group, That's a complete restaurant management organization specializing in hotel food and beverage or standalone restaurant operations. He's also the CEO of Seabreeze Island Grill. That's a waterfront Caribbean-themed seafood restaurant with excellent views of Boca Ciega Bay. He's also the president of JD's Restaurant and Lounge. That's a waterfront casual seafood restaurant and lounge. They serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they offer entertainment seven days a week. He's also the principal of People and Betty's Bakery. That's a beach coffee shop and Latin-inspired bakery. He's also, I kid you not, the managing partner at Big Claw Catering. He's also the CEO of Guilty Sea Pub and Sports. And the latest uh, restaurant that he and his family has acquired is Bon Appetit Restaurant in Dunedin with unbelievable views of the water. So without further ado, welcome and thank you so much, Matt, for being here. Thank you, Nicole. Glad to be here. 
when I look at somebody like you, I mean, success, it, just, just the word success it falls short of what you've accomplished. Uh, we've, I've spoken on, on this podcast to other founders and owners and children of, of companies that have been handed down. And I, I'd like for you to just kind of like help, help bring us up to speed on the history of the original Krabby Bills being created by your father um, and your mother. And and how and how you were kind of brought up in the restaurant industry? Yeah, so my my parents started in 1975 in the restaurant business in Florida. They had owned a place previously in New Jersey, a seafood restaurant in New Jersey, uh, in 1964, mm-hmm. about the time I was born. Um, but they moved here in '68, and my dad did some shrimping and did some crabbing and different things like that. And then eventually in 1975, they opened up their first seafood restaurant, just a small little place in Reddington Shores. Oddly enough, just doors down from uh, Seabreeze. Okay. Where we are now. Yes. And so um, after, you know, opening that restaurant and doing a number of different restaurants in different areas, we settled down as uh, Krabby Bills eventually in 1983, bought some property there and expanded that. And it was wildly successful family business. And my mother's passing in 2000. And then I took over the family business. My father largely retired at that point. Uh, but, uh, you know, just like any old story business brand, mm-hmm. we've been around, we've done a lot of different things. And so, you know, we've grown it to where we are today and uh, very happy with the trajectory uh, for our family business. And so you, they started you uh, working in the restaurant yeah. <laughs> from a very young age. What, what did they have yeah, you do so when I you said, were a child? You know, I was 12 years old. I can remember being in the, in the, you know, that first restaurant I was telling you about mm-hmm. that they opened in 1975. About two years ago, I went in there and I was, um, and it was almost during the pandemic, I think. And so I went in there and there was a, it was a Thai restaurant now. And, um, and so I went in there and I said to the owner, I said, you know, I, um, I remember this was my mother and father's restaurant 40 plus years ago. And I'd like to see if I can just walk around in the back of the restaurant. And it was crazy because the same dish sink that I washed dishes at, at 12 years old was still there. The the hood where my mother would be making seafood gumbo was still there. And uh, I could, the bones were the same, you know, so it was great opportunity to be able to walk through there and see that. You know, today you are a very successful leader um, I have no idea how you manage your time and split yourself, but I think one of the things that I thought about, you know, what do I really want to hone in that would be of value to our listeners? A lot of our listeners maybe already own a restaurant and they're, you know, a restaurant is a very difficult business to run. And uh, you mentioned that, you know, one of your skills that you, you've really honed is managing people. And to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, you you didn't go to college or, or anything like that. So everything you know is like hard knocks. Sure. Share that with us. Because the, the longer I've been around, the more I realize that there ain't, there, there ain't no school like the school of hard knocks. Like that's where you really learn. Well, I think too, it, it's that I've been in the business for a long time since, since childhood. And in any business that you're in long-term enough, you, you evolve with the business or you're out of business. Mm-hmm. And so the restaurant business is certainly no different than that. You know, we, um, technology didn't exist when I was a, a kid mm-hmm. and or even a young man. So um, now we've intertwined all that and, and we've evolved and we've changed the way that we operate. We changed the way we address employees, their team members, and we changed the language. We changed the the MO, how we operate. And uh, and it's wonderful to be able to coexist and be able to change with the times and be able to be successful. And if you're not able to change, you can't be successful because mm-hmm. the world's going to change around you. Um, have you noticed any like major changes between, you, you talked about the, with the way that you talk to people, um, changes between the way that your parents would talk to your staff or just treat your staff back in the 70s and the 80s versus how you interact with people now. Yeah. And, and I actually enjoy it much better now. I'm more accustomed to this, you know, than I was to that. I mean, my dad was a very tough guy. He was a hard guy. He was Marine, you know, and he was was really crabby. Yeah. And I guess we all could be right. But he was, but he was a Marine. He was a child of the depression. My mother was too. So as children of the great depression, you wind up, your lifestyle is much different. You know, you, Mm -hmm. you care about, 
everything that was, uh, you know, you don't waste anything and you go ahead and you, you know, whether it's an egg, a simple, simple egg. My dad would tell me stories about how he stole eggs from his father. His father was a chicken farmer. He stole eggs from his father and he took a beating for it. So their, their, their life was different than my life. And so I like this now where it's more uh, all-encompassing. We, we bring people in. We have conversations. We talk about culture. We talk about trying to make people better make the environment better for everybody. And it is totally different than when I was a kid. You know, if you were a poor employee before, you were a poor performer before, and you misbehaved, you got fired, you were, maybe you were lucky if my dad didn't beat you in the parking lot, you know? <laughs> and now today we give everybody, you know, we, we don't even give hugs because we, you know, we shouldn't be hugging people, right, but right. we do have conversations <laughs> with people about how to make things better between them and for all of us. So there's more... More patience, more lenience. And reflection and, and sharing the expectations and performance and and about how to deal with other people in a in a better manner. So we're teaching people all the time. So it's, I say we're part priest, part counselor, mm-hmm. you know, which is fine. Yeah, I took a, a, a training uh, through like the Jim Morin Entrepreneurship Center and one of my classmates owned, uh, actually many of my classmates owned restaurants and they were kind of, you know, voicing some of their own frustrations in managing the restaurant. Although a lot of them had just problems with other people, uh, which I, I think honestly that goes across all industries. What are some of your your best go to techniques for when you're having problems with uh, employees, whether it be you know at any level, the kitchen, the management, the wait staff, whatever? Um, what are some some uh, best practices for correcting behavior that is not acceptable? I think for us, it's some self-analysis. So are, is it is it the staff member or team member's fault or is it our fault? Did we not share expectations? Mm-hmm. Did we not train them? You know, if we've done our jobs, then it's on them mm-hmm. to some, you know, to some extent. But always reflecting first, what have we done to go ahead and bring us to where we are? Beautiful. You know, my son was telling me a story the other day where he said he was talking to some chefs and, he said, you know, we we are going to make sure in our culture, in our organization, we're going to treat everybody respectfully. We're not going to go ahead and demean anybody. And and that went multiple meetings with multiple different people regarding the situation that happened between a dishwasher and that chef. And my son said at the end of the meeting, the three hours were up. He says that at the end of that meeting, the chef said, you know, it won't matter. That dishwasher is going to be fired anyway in a week. And my son said, have a seat. We're not done. You know, you you didn't hear what I was saying. You know, if you're leaving this room not getting it, then we haven't spent enough time. So hopefully we can save the dishwasher. Hopefully we can save the chef. And that would be our goal. So so you'll sit there and, and hash it out and talk it out until things get resolved. It's immense. Uh, the, the, the amount of time that we spend about communication and messaging and making sure that our team understand what our goals are and what our expectations are and about that dish or about how we're going to serve our guests or how we're going to treat one another professionally and and all that. It's just a, a, a numerous amount of time that we spend with it, but it, I think that it gives us results in the end of the day that our people understand that, you know, that's what we're about. And that sounds really easy, like on a, you know, if, if you were only overseeing one restaurant. How, how do you make it work so that you can keep your pulse on what's going on with all of your properties? You're just one person, and we all have the same 24 hours in a day. So share, share your, 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 your trick for pulling that, this off. Well, I think for me is that it's never about me. It's always about layers of people, that everybody's better. So my son, my daughter, our managers, our area of director operations – and so everybody is accessible and everybody's available. And, and so if, if you work for me, I do my best to remember your name. But the, th- the point is, is that it's never a top-down strategy for us because okay. I'm not going to live forever. I'm not going to be here forever. Sure. And so the better all of us become, the better we are as an organization. So it's a legacy family business. It's not about how well I'm doing. It's not Matt Loader's way. It's the way we do things that... Our Crabby Bill family brands. So it sounds like you're you're creating like uh, micro pockets of leaders within each 
you know, within each restaurant, and that's how you can, you know, keep an eye and make sure that everything is is yeah, going according to Yeah, we do that in tools. I mean, we use, we have big screens uh, in each of our restaurants for, you know, meetings, whether they're Zoom meetings or meetings to be able to communicate. Uh, we, we use Microsoft Teams, and, and so there's a lot of access for everybody to be able to use that, you know. So it's, and, um, and it is about all that, you know, just continuously pushing that messaging. What would you say is the thing that sets your brand of restaurants apart? What's that culture that you're you're pushing? I think it is about that inclusion. And my son said it very, very well the other day. He said, if you're not passionate about taking care of our guests, about serving our guests, if you're not passionate about being able to do that well, whatever your role is in our organization, whether you're a dishwasher or you're, you're a catering person or you're a chef or server, if you're not passionate about that, then this probably isn't the place for you because there's plenty of places you can get a job. But this is too important to those of us who are in this to go ahead and to be a career. You hire based on passion mm-hmm. and uh, the core values. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And if those aren't aligned, it's evident if we're watching, if we're looking, mm-hmm. and we have expectations, then it's it's seen. So if you're if you're not passionate enough, you may be a great server, you may be a great chef, but if you're not a great team member, mm-hmm. it's probably not for you because this is too important to us. It's not you're not you're not just one restaurant buying. You've got all of these different organizations. Are there ways that you leverage your relationships with your vendors to get, uh, you know, d- volume discounts and share resources among your restaurants? Because yeah. you all they all kind of have the same theme. Sure, and and it's back end. You know, it's. Um, it's all that that we we manage those things, but it is like you say, shared resources and and purchasing contracts and and um, but the big thing is is that I think we we have that kind of expectation out of our vendors as well as we do about our own people. Mm-hmm. So how can we go ahead and have you as a vendor if you don't provide great clean linens that are that are pressed well and are in good shape when that's what we expect for our guests to to get. Right. So if that's the case, if we can't rely on you for that, it's not going to work for us. Right, right, right. You know? So so it's finding vendors that are aligned. Have you have you um, felt pressure from like rising costs of food? Yeah, we, we have. But, you know, in the end of the day, we have to, you know, some guests really shouldn't be eating out. And I hate to say that, but, <laughs> but you know, we have Wait, a response. Well, here's the reality right, of it is we, we have a responsibility to pay our people well. Mm-hmm. We have a responsibility to have good facilities that are cleaned mm-hmm. and, and kept in good shape. And to be able to do that, we have to charge what we have to charge, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And if, if we can't make money, right. we can't be in business. That's right. Or we can be in business and provide, you know, dirty environments or underpaid yeah. staff who are unhappy about being here. Right. Then that doesn't work long term. That's not a strategy for success. Yeah, you you have to charge what you what you have to charge to make the entire operations work. And if you feel like that's too expensive, then you shouldn't be eating out. Well, and again, <laughs> I, I I want everybody as a customer. Yeah, and and I know sometimes that doesn't work for everybody. You know, my my restaurants just won't work for everybody because yeah. they can get something less expensive somewhere else, yeah. or they can go ahead and they can have. But I know what it costs me to be able to operate. And yes. if I can't go ahead and make a living and pay for my people and make them happy in the environment they're in, then I'm not long-term in the business. That's right. That's absolutely right. You mentioned your son a few times already. Um, and when when um, we came in, you mentioned, you know, he's my secession plan. We had talked about how, you know, yes, we're not all, gonna, you know, we're not going to live forever. Tell me how, it sounds like you've been training your son for a while to take over. Tell me about that. Well, I've been, you know, we're, I'm blessed because I have my nephew, my son-in-law, my daughter, my other daughter work in our family business. My wife was working in our family business and we have a long-term, you know, employees that have been with us for a great many years mm-hmm. and the uh, team members. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, I want a succession plan that works and to be able to do that, a friend, I, I do a lot with mentors. So people oh. that are professional business people that I go to, that I, I love talking to and and some are competitors and some are not. They're in different fields altogether. They've been successful. And one of these mentors for me is 87 years old, and he was in the textile business. Textile. And he, and I told him, you know, I have a succession plan, and it's a long-term family business. And he said, you know, he said, well, who is, who is the leader? Who is the succession plan for you if something were to happen? And I said, well, I don't know. My, my daughter is very capable. My son's capable. My other 
a nephew is capable. And he said, well, that's not a plan. You have to name somebody and everybody has to be on board with who that person is. And we did that. And it, it makes a lot more sense because everybody's involved in the business, family that are involved in the business, all understand what the road forward looks like. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that winging it is not a plan. Just like, you know, actually writing out your will and doing all your estate planning and being very specific about who gets what, you're introducing your son and not, you know, just from early on, you know, when you're still healthy, when you still have many years ahead of you and, uh, and introducing him so that everybody can start to realize that, you know, okay, this is going to be the new boss and he's been in training so he, I can trust him. Yeah. Yeah. And it works very well because he understands where his, what his role is mm-hmm. and he takes it seriously. And, and things that I would do out of emotion or things that I would do out of, well, we've always done it this way. He's already thinking the next 30 years, what's the next 30 years look like and how do I help mold that? How do I make it a better environment for everybody who's here? And was he very receptive and, and uh, open and gracious to to taking on that yeah. role, or did he want to do something else? No, it's, it's good. And now there are things like I'll say to him, you know, I see you're very busy, and so I think you need a personal assistant. I never had one, mm-hmm. but I think you need one because I see our business is growing, and I want you to be successful. And I think for time management, I think you need a personal assistant. Mm-hmm. So he at first said no, right, and then he took on the personal assistant. It's been wonderful. And he's learned how to manage through a person like that to help him expand his reach and go ahead and do more. So you've been able to, uh, you know, uh, pass on everything that you've learned from your mentors. Now you're able to mentor your son, you know, live and in action. And then whenever it is that you you pass, eventually uh, he'll be fully equipped to handle. Well, they'll have a lot of life insurance, so that's good. But money only lasts so long, yeah. so they need to be able to operate the business. And, and truthfully, we're we're already looking at the next generation after him mm-hmm. to see who may be the heir parent to go ahead and be able to run the, the family business if, if that's what they choose to do. Wow. Um, you know, give them an education, but, but also go ahead and be able to say which one of the grandchildren uh, wow. may be in a position to be able to like the business well enough to be able to do this. Wow. Very good. The interesting thing that that I I don't think we talked about was that we are always trying to position our business for a strategic way that goes ahead and helps us to go ahead and grow the business well. So like we have a coffee shop, we needed, we saw a need in our market for a coffee shop. So we opened a coffee shop and, and it's been wonderfully successful and it works very well in our market where we're at there in Indian Rocks Beach. We had an opportunity to buy one of our competitors. They've been a competitor for 37 years. We realized that they're only two blocks from us, mm-hmm. but their clients were different than ours mm-hmm. as Krabby Bills. So yeah, because Krabby Bills is very casual, laid back, and this is more upscale. Well, no, this uh, this was JD, so it was also very laid back, but it was very much like a 19, stepping back in time to a 1970 restaurant, you know, had a lounge in the front had an outside patio, but they uh, but they had a very loyal following and they weren't particularly Carabby Bill customers. But we but we saw the opportunity to purchase them and leave it the same as it's been because if the customer consumer liked it the way it was, mm-hmm. uh, the family that owned it, uh, we become friendly with them as friendly competitors. Like I said, I'm always friendly with trying to reach out to competitors. And so we saw the opportunity to purchase them, but we left it the same as it had been. Because we realized if it's not broke, don't not fix broken, it, <laughs> right? So there were little things we've done, you know, fixed. A, I told my daughter Mia, who you know, yeah. I said to her, you know, we're not going to change anything. We vowed to go ahead and keep this the same way that it's been. We sat down and for our first lunch as a family in there, and I sat down in a chair and I said, you know, scratch that. We have a life safety issue. This chair is going to break on. Yeah, yeah, it's just so, a little so wobbly. We did. We put all new chairs in. And the guests were happy with that, but it was the 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 culture there, mm-hmm. the dynamics there have been very good for the the staff that have been there, some of the long term, um, and so the same thing for us. It's always trying to try, try and look at a strategic way of building our our model, our business, but also adding something to the community that we serve. You know, so we just opened our sports bar there. And there was no sports bar in in our market right there. Right. So we did that. Which is it, which is mostly, by the way, just uh, 
like Reddington Shores. Well, so how, it's even closer than that, right? Okay. So Krabby Bills is at 401 Golf Boulevard. Okay. Um, JD's is at 125 Golf Boulevard. Yeah. And this is at uh, this is at 301 Golf Boulevard. So it's basically a block between yeah. our two restaurants. We, I did a family vacation. At, I rented an Airbnb and um, in Reddington Shores, and I was remember driving down the thing, thinking, "Oh, that's Matt's. Oh, that's Matt's." Like you, based not that you own the whole block, sure. but basically you guys own a nice big we're paying stretch. For it. <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs> Maybe my grandchildren will own it, but we're paying for it. What happened to uh, Lulu's? So the pandemic created a lot of different changes in our business model, right? So Lulu's was. Uh, an older crowd. It was we built, bought a competitor's occupied a space that was occupied by one of our competitors. We put a similar brand in there doing seafood, and then we uh, during the pandemic we said, you know, this won't work. Let's close it. Let's remodel it, and we moved our Mexican concept into that. So that houses Jake's today. Why wasn't Lulu's working? Well, it was just you had an older clientele, and the building itself was in in. Disrepair was older and needed a real good facelift. So instead of putting a facelift on it and put it right back in what it was, particularly because we said, you know, the last customers that will come back would be the people that were most um, fragile and concerning the uh, pandemic and the COVID. Right, right, right. Right. So they would be the last people coming back. So we, we thought, you know, our Mexican best casual has a lot younger demographic. Gotcha. So those folks will be back sooner. And, gotcha. And, dining with us. All right. So it worked out really good. Yeah. How do you handle, you know, these unforeseen acts of God, red tide, um, you know, the pandemic, um, the hurricanes, you guys are on a, on, aren't you on a barrier reef? Like, yeah. so, so, so geographically you're in a very vulnerable location. Sure. How do you, how do you ride those waves? Well, we, we have, um, we wind up having you know, this forethought to say, look, this is an issue for us. We're also, you know, here. Uh, so we built our other business, our catering business. So we have two catering businesses. One is uh, Big Claw Catering, which is catering that you see in Krabby Bills. And a lot of that's off-premise catering or in one of our venues. We have an, a, another team that does that. And then we built another customer-facing brand. It's called Savor the Moment Catering. So that goes ahead and has that. Uh, that is a hiring catering. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something different. So that's on the economics, getting money in, right? right? In spite of whatever may happen. Diversified portfolio. Right. The other is we're looking for space off the barrier islands to be able to go ahead and create a commissary kitchen and storage for us to warehouse and purchase some of our own things. So like for us would be buying glassware by the pallet loads. Mm -hmm. So if we use that same glassware amongst our brands, it's something that makes sense for us to go ahead and be able to purchase that in bigger volume and be able to return some of the savings to our individual restaurants. How, how, where do you have those and who do you have those conversations with and how do you identify those issues or, or areas where you can be more efficient? No, I think I think my son is a great thing, but we, we do workshops too amongst our whole leadership team. So okay. the conversation is not just centered around one or two people and, hey, we've decided the right. conversation, but it's it's one of the things where Matt Jr. said to me, he said, it's, it's we're having a conversation. This isn't a committee, but we're having a conversation for the purpose of getting different people's points of view. Right. And then, you know, we'll make a decision. I'll make a decision. You'll make a decision, Dad. But at least that way there, we've, we've listened, listened to enough to people. Everybody. And people appreciate that too, all of our team. Do you feel, do you think people feel comfortable telling you, because it's easy to say something nice, but if it's something that's might be unflattering or, or, you know, inflammatory, what do you do to, to help people know that, hey, like you're, you can say whatever we, we. I think that it has to come from, from me or it has to come from my son, right? So to be able to go ahead and say it is one thing to be able to live it. I, I remember years ago, I said to a server who worked for us, I said, uh, you know, as a, in a group meeting, I said, look, we, we all need to wear a smile, put a smile on our face. You know, it's our best part of our uniform. And it's something I read out of a magazine or something. <laughs> and so the, the server who'd worked for our family for a number of years said to me, she said, well, you don't smile. You're not, you're not friendly enough walking through the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And it, it really clicked for me that she was correct. And after yes. that, I started trying to remember everybody's name who worked for me. Yeah. I tried to make sure that I was the person walking in and saying good morning to everybody. Because if you fail to say good morning to one person, yeah. 
that person thinks that there's something wrong with what's going on. Yeah. You know, so it, it takes the leadership yes. in, a, in a, any business environment has to be the person who sets the pace yes. to go ahead and set the bar for here to say, look, this is what we do as an organization. But and also to say, you don't have to always tell me what I want to hear. Exactly. You know, so I will have people send me text messages. I'll have a bartender in a restaurant send me a text message saying, hey, the, the handrail here was painted but it wasn't painted well, and it's already coming off. Okay. And so I'll reach out to my daughter, Mia, and say, Mia, we need to get this taken care of, you know. And then that same bartender will send me a text back a week later saying it hasn't happened yet. So it's good because they're not afraid, and it's because I'm very welcoming mm-hmm. of that. And I guess part of that's in a family business. You're accustomed to going ahead and, and hearing things. People aren't afraid to say things in a right. family environment. Yeah. Yeah. Most part. Yeah. I mean, and you know, there's pros and cons to that. I've always, you know, the general thing is, you know, don't do business with friends and family. They don't respect you at the same level. Have you, how have you, has that happened to you where like you find that your other family members are not really respecting you for whatever reason and and you've had to kind of been like, hey, business is business. I I think that, you know, and long-term family business, not all my family members, I will tell you, love me. Some hate me, uh, but I may have fired them, you know, over the years. Uh, But it was a necessity for the safety of our business, Mm -hmm. or at least I felt that way. They didn't feel that way, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But family is no different than generally we have 700 employees amongst our different businesses in Pinellas County. And and so, you know, there there will be people there amongst them that are great people. There will be people that aren't, but that's the same thing. Thing is true for families. Mm-hmm. People who can take criticism, people who can lash it out but can't take it. Right. So it's, I don't think it's any different. I, you know, I've worked with people who weren't family members and they were just as bad or just as good. So it's just people are people. Yes, people are people. Um, looking forward to the future, uh, you said you have the ambition of wanting to have 25 mm-hmm. uh, properties. Right. Is that it? What made you pick that goal? It's, it's just trying to get enough momentum, the number. Uh, with enough momentum, something we can handle within our our group, our leadership team, and and still have a good quality of life, mm-hmm. if, particularly if things are close enough, you know, to where it's not we're not flying somebody to another state, mm-hmm. we're not asking you to give up time with your family, right? You know, we're asking we're making your family a priority, right? Uh, for us, just like I want, you know, when I was a kid, my dad was like, "You're going to work 18 hours a day, seven days a week." And you will see your kids send money home and you will see your kids if your wife does a great job with them. Right. And thank God she did. But I don't want that for my grandchildren. Right. And I don't want that for your children if you work for me. Right. I want you to be able to know your children, go to your children's baseball games. Yes. Because yeah. if not, then why are you working? That's right. That yeah. That's when I, not to make this about me, but that's, we. I just had this conversation uh, with one of my team members, Maria. We went to... Um, to Illinois for a photo shoot and we were catching up over dinner and she was telling me about her his, her work background in corporate and uh, not just in corporate, but she was an athletic trainer. So she's like, I, I was always traveling, you know, the days were long. I just, I, I wanted to have a husband and a family and I, I knew this wasn't going to be sustainable. So once I got pregnant with my first son, I, you know, took a break. But once my son went off to kindergarten, I needed something to do. And part of what I'm doing with my company, with everybody working remotely, um, is exactly that. It's respecting that work-life balance. And I was even telling her we have a client that I had to move the, uh, our, our weekly scheduled meeting by one hour because I had my daughter's winter show. And so I was like jumping through hoops to see if I could like go to the show and come back. And Maria's like, just ask Kim if she's willing to move it a little bit. And I asked the client and the client wrote back, absolutely, that is a priority. And so when Maria and I were having dinner, I, I was telling her, I want I want our clients to have that mindset that family and quality of life is number one, you know. And also, I want team members that are looking to get out of that uh, corporate, uh, you know, that hardcore, uh, you know, slave driver type employer, and just be able to contribute to the world, but also have a good quality of life. Because there's just those extremes to me make no sense. Like you were talking about, like how you need to charge enough money to make the whole thing work. Same thing. It's to me, if you're working that hard and everything is, 
you know, tip so far to the other side. What's the, what are you doing? What's the point of living? Yeah. I had a fellow we brought in and, you know, we were blessed with having a lot of personalities and a lot of people we get to know. And so the fellow said something that really bothered me and, and it, he, he no longer works with us, but it's not for that reason. And he was a great human being. I, mm-hmm. I still consider him a friend, but he said something that bothered me. He said, he said, in my world, he said, it's execute or be executed. <laughs> and I'm oh like, God. Nah, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. So, and I want people to perform, yeah. but not at the, not at the threat of execution yeah. or not of, of the threat of, hey, you have to perform or you're out of here. Yeah. You know, yeah, we want you to perform. We want to give you all the tools. Was that like you. a manager? Yeah. He was talking was about like, you know, so it sounds like a very militant and rough manager. Yeah. And that doesn't align with your culture of, you know, let's hash it out. Let's So just to kind of sidestep on that, um, sounds like you're very patient with your people. Like you said, you're part part priest, part psychologist. At, at what point do you realize, all right, this just is not going to work? I think we're we're working on creating all kinds of tools to make it easier for our people to go ahead and perform, right? So if we've got some app, a proprietary app on the phone for management. Wow. So the, the app, it should be out in 30 days. But okay. the thing is, is everything is loaded on there. So it makes it easy for you to do your job and it makes it easy for you to, you know, um, create a checklist or incident report for you to complete one. Okay. And, but if you fail to do that, and it's cost us customers. It's cost us. Those things are, are then recorded so that we have some kind of point scale that says, look, we've given Nicole so much opportunity to be successful and to do her thing and give her all these tools, but she's not doing it. We can't have her in this role, in right. this particular role for us. Maybe she can have another role, but not in such a critical role for the rest of our people. Right. So you're using data to be very objective yes. and just be very black and white about it. Yeah. Where where did this idea from an, for an app came from? Was it a vendor? Did you guys no. reach out and got it custom made? Your no, son? It's, it's my son. Honestly, <laughs> it's amazing. It's it's amazing because he's become so adept at all this stuff. And of course, I told you earlier, technology is not my friend, right? I can't do a remote on my television at home, thank God, for my wife or else. I wouldn't be able to watch television because I can't figure it out. But with him, he he does it. He researches it. You know, his generation is a different generation. Yes. So, but he's using it very well for the benefit of our it's business. Technology forward generation. Yeah. So, speaking of forward, what what do you and your son see in the future for for your family brands of restaurants? Well, I think uh, for us, it is acquiring more um, restaurants and and businesses that are that align with our business that can help us either vertically or or grow our footprint, um, but um, but going ahead and doing that where people have seen themselves in a situation where they can't adjust to the new normal. A business person may have been successful for 30 years and they don't have a succession plan mm-hmm. as we do. And being able to purchase or acquire some of those businesses that would also go ahead and complement what we do and go ahead and grow that. So that would be our goal. And not to nothing is more important than doing what we're doing right. Mm-hmm. And in long term, if we just keep that focus, I think we'll be fine as a family business for a long time. And you have the goal of 25 restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a reason, like what do you know that I don't know about why 25 is that magic number where you're not overwhelmed, uh, but you're kind of, how did you pick that number? Well, I think it's being able to say, okay, if our, Back house systems are the same. If uh, we hire people the same way, we onboard people the same way, we manage our, our staff and our team members the same way. I think that number based on our back end of our our, uh, our infrastructure, that, that number works. And it also helps us to go ahead and reach a sales goal or a revenue goal of, say, you know, $100 million. And then at that point there, everything keeps feeding itself. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? Just any advice or any insight that you've kind of, you know, picked up along the way that you'd want to kind of maybe plant that seed to help them be successful? I think that that succession planning is important. And I think it's important for your families. I think it's important for your employees and your team members' families. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, that it's never too soon to go ahead and look at that. And then the other thing, I had a conversation with a restaurateur. It's wonderful because at my age, I don't know, people think they can, you know, they can reach out to me and people who have to do, do that. And a fellow reached out to me the other day and I said, look, there's, I can tell you from my own personal experience, because I've had 
failures. I've had things that didn't work out and cost a lot of money. Thank God, more wins than losses. Yes. <laughs> um, but but I think that's part of the whole thing with leadership. You have to have humility to go ahead and understand those things. You know, they are what they are. But um, for me, I said, there is no white knight. You have to be your own white knight. You have to take care of yourself. You have to be the person who makes the change within your organization and try and make sure that you are not counting on somebody else to come and save you from your mistakes. Mm-hmm. You got to fix your own mistakes. Yep. And you have the ability to do that. It may not be comfortable, may not be easy, but it's all within you. Yes. Amen. That's true. What what's your daughter Mia doing? Cuz I know she had like the the froyo Yeah, so called? you know she went to uh, Oregon. They spent like 4 years out there. And then they wound up coming back. Her husband and her came back. And, and when they came back, they had two children. By the time they came back, it's wonderful. And so now we have like six uh, six grandchildren. And But in the school, they all go to um, Indian Rocks Christian School. Mm-hmm. So there's like 11 children that are related, second oh, wow. cousins, everything in that school. <laughs> and Mia winds up being the school bus driver. Many times she's, she reaches out in the text message, yeah. family group text message, I'm going to pick up, who needs all, to pick I, up? I, all the kids, yes. who needs to pick up? Who needs up? to pick up? And so, uh, but- And but you guys she, live nearby too. Yeah, we do. So oh everybody gosh. lives what a very close with them. Oh, it's wonderful. And so they uh, they will wind up, um, Mia does like for us, she does uh, facilities man- management. Okay. So she does the floorings, remodelings, furnishings, all that kind of stuff. And so you can imagine it's large, there's always projects going yeah. on that she's managing all that. And her her husband, JT, does uh, business development for us. So he he's always uh, working on going ahead and, and finance or, you know, looking at, uh, you know, possible people who want to invest in us in some of our projects. And then uh, my son does the operations side. Matt Jr. does the operations side. My daughter, Alicia, does the uh, HR and uh, accounting. And and uh, she's on board top of that. We have lots of people work for us. But she does the perch to watch and make sure everything's happening the way it's supposed to. All our responsibilities are met that way. And uh, my nephew, Paulie, does uh, inventory management. And uh, he has a brother who's disabled in North Carolina that he cares a great deal about. And he has two small children here. Mm-hmm. But I want him to be able to work remotely enough so that he can go give his brother attention when he wants to, or he can give his own children here attention. Uh, So it's important to make, like I said, it's all quality of life stuff. But they all have their own areas of responsibility. And, you know, me, I'm like a traffic director. I need to make sure they're not crossing over Mm -hmm. each uh, each other's lanes of responsibility. What do you think your mom and dad, do you think that they had any idea that Krabby Bill's restaurant was going to, you know, turn and multiply and provide for so many generations down the pike. Can you just kind of comment on how you think they feel? You know, my mother died in 2000, so she never really got the opportunity to see everything that's happened. My father passed in 2018, but the last two years he was really under my care. And uh, he had a little apartment right down the street from Krabby Bills, and he would go back and forth with an electric wheelchair. And I got to spend a great deal of time with him at that point. And uh, I think he was very proud of what we had accomplished as a family, you know. You think? Yeah. (laughs) He was very happy. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And when I make do my little family vacations in Reddington Shores, which is such a gorgeous beach area, it's like one of the most perfect beaches ever. And we and we go to our you know to your restaurants. I always tell my husband like, oh, this is owned by Matt Loader, and I give him like the whole story. You know, it's funny because being an old brand, uh, being around as long as we have, this is what we encounter all the time, mm-hmm. right? Because people have an impression, people have an experience, and so when they come back to you. You know, they came there with their grandparents and now they're bringing their children yes. to our place. Yes. And so it's important for us to go ahead and give them the same type of experience because if we don't, then they it's totally deflated. Their last experience when they were a child and it's hard because okay. they weren't paying for it. They had people they loved that are no longer with them. Yes. You know, and so for us to be able to go ahead and live up to that and give them that type of experience yeah. again to where they're happy with it. Yes. Uh, is challenging. But if we don't, if we fail to do that, we've ruined a chain, a very, you know, happy experience chain for people. Yes. And I'll tell you, my first experience with your brand um, was the Krabby Bills on uh, at Pier 60. Right. Way, early 2000s. I, I think I was still in college. And I, I came with, my family was visiting me. 
uh, from Puerto Rico. I was with my little brother, my sister, my, 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 my dad and my stepmom. And I actually have a mental picture of that day because you had one of your people going by taking pictures and then you would do like a souvenir little peep. What is that called? Like where the peephole the key thing, chain, right. the keychain key or something where like you that. can see yeah, the picture. And you know, you, you keep that in a drawer and you sure. periodically look at it. And I actually have, like I said, I have a mental picture of my little sister smiling, my brother smiling and me in the middle with, you know, that, and, and we did have a, a good lunch and that, that is an experience that I always kept with me. And then when I've gone on other, uh, you know, family beach vacations to Clearwater, uh, was it, did you have another one a little bit further up North? Anyways, I, you have multiple locations True. everywhere. And so same thing, you go there and there is that reminiscent and that emotional, uh, connection. And then, you know, people ask me, what is a brand? And I tell them, you know, a, you know, brand is, is a little bit complicated to kind of you know, verbalize and express, but it's, it's exactly that. It's that experience. How, how would you describe for your Krabby Bills brand per se, what is that experience that you're hoping that every guest has? I think that where they can come away from having a dining experience with us, the food was good and the atmosphere and the hospitality was better. So people go ahead and remember that because unfortunately in the world we're living in, that is more and more difficult to achieve. And it's less common, yeah. but it's exactly what people will remember. But your people nail it. I, 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 I can't speak for some of your other brands, but I know the Krabby Bills brand, every time I've been to any of them, I've had what you just described. The food was good. The service was even better. Uh, the ambiance and the environment was excellent. How, how do you keep that? How do you pull that off? Yeah. And I think that it is just because it's, it is the focus it's the focus on the, uh, my, my son and I went to, uh, we don't eat out as often together because he's got a son, so he's busy taking care of his, his son's 11. So it's, it's wonderful. And so, uh, but my, my son and I don't, we used to go to restaurants all the time, different mm-hmm. restaurants. So now we don't do that as often and I can't stand the calories anymore because I'm old. <laughs> but the thing about it is, is we went to a, a place that's a local landmark, I won't mention it. And we went in and the floors were crooked and the tables were small and the ceiling was low. Mm-hmm. And and it was, you know, that kind of environment where you're there and you say, well, this is, you know, just a, an authentic place. It's been here a long time. But they charge the same money as I did, mm-hmm. you know, for the same product. And so, you know, in our places, we've come a long way. So our floors aren't crooked. Our bathrooms are big enough for somebody disabled to get into. And so, you know, we've, done a lot of reflection on how to go ahead and up the environment to, because cheap, you know, seafood is not cheap. So as part of the total experience, mm-hmm. our facilities have to be clean and have to be updated enough to match what we're charging for seafood. So here I am saying, as a guest, I'm in this competitor's place and it's terrible, it's dingy and it's it's authentic, but it's terrible and dingy. And they're charging the same money as I am. Right. You know, so I think for the total experience. So it is always thinking about the whole total package. The total experience. Yeah. It, and, and that's it's very true. You guys are the worst to go out to eat with. I have another client that owns a restaurant. And we, um, back with, you know, before I was married and have, had, had a kid, we, we would do that. We would go to different restaurants just to kind of, just to try so he could like see what other people, other restaurants are doing. And I can't tell you how many times he's ruined my meal because he'll sit there and go, that was microwaved. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like cutting into my salmon. He's like, that was put in a microwave. Um, Or my steak, he'll put, he'll be like, that has a, that's a tendon. They forgot to cut the tendon out of it. That's a blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, shut up. (laughs) Or he'll get aggravated if like they take too long to bring his beer. He's like, they would have, people would be leaving a review already if, if it's, if we took this long to bring a beer, like it's, you guys are very, what, what, what's the most like asinine thing that you've kind of pointed out when you were eating out somewhere else? I will. I'm okay as a consumer, right? Because I'm always saying on the other side, I'm happy if I don't get a great experience. Even if I pay, I'm great. I'm happy if I don't get a great experience because I'm saying, okay, well, that's good for me. You know, Mm -hmm. my people wouldn't have failed on that or we would have been better. Our product would have been better or whatever on those things. I, I, one thing I don't, I'm not okay with is service. So I was at a very good restaurant 
and well-known restaurant. And there were a party of 20 of us. We were celebrating my father-in-law's birthday, I think, before he had his recent stroke. And so we were there, and I'm like, oh, my God, I asked for the bill. You know, and I said to the waiter, I said, you know, there's, I'm asking for the bill, and, and you're not getting it here. You know, what's going on? And my wife is like, you know, be quiet. Just be patient. And I'm like, I'm being patient, but they're a busy restaurant. They have lots of customers. Or, you know, if they, they don't have enough staff, pay more. Get more people. Right. Fix that problem. So as a consumer, I don't have it. So service is the one thing I, I don't think I ever am okay with as a consumer right. in another person's restaurant. Right. But I, I guess I'm the same way. If I were in the post office and didn't get good service, I would be upset about it. Yeah. But particularly in the restaurant business, because I want people to have good experiences in restaurants. Right. So they come back to all restaurants, not just mine, but yeah. you know, all restaurants. So if they don't get a good experience, they kind of write places off. And I don't want that. You yeah. know, so I will tell somebody, I always over tip, but I'm not tipping you today because I got lousy <laughs> service. And I always over tip, but not you. Yeah. Not today. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's pretty much, that's uh, all I can think of. Uh, this has been really great. Thank you so much for coming out here and, and making the drive and uh, sharing some of your best practices with me and, and our listener, right? The one listener. <laughs> uh, no, thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nicole. Glad to. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can be notified of new episodes where we discuss business, marketing, and peek under the hood of successful companies to understand the leadership behind the organization and best practices for today's challenges. I'm your host, Nicole Alisea, founder and president of Brand Envy, an integrated global marketing communications firm based in sunny Tampa Bay. Learn more at createbrandenvy.com. Thanks for listening to Create Brand Envy. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. Brand Envy is an integrated marketing and advertising agency that helps brands innovate while maintaining their focus and identity. To learn more or to get in touch with Nicole, visit createbrandenvy.com. That's createbrand and the letters envy.com. We'll see you next time.